0: Father, we are thankful we're here again, always beginning our prayer and thanks, Father, never taking for granted the chance to study in your word and the opportunity to meet and uh, the opportunity in my life to prepare and to be ready to teach and for so many others, Father, who in their busy lives have probably struggled at times to be part of something that goes for an extended period like this study, but yet in grace, Father, you continue to bring so many people back and give them chances to continue in this study. Thank you, Father, for that. and in particular tonight, Father, looking at Isaiah again and in his wisdom regarding your plans for the end times, we pray, Father, that we would see it not only as uh, truth from the point of view of history, but also truth from the point of view of our future. And we would know that, that these are things, Father, we can genuinely look forward to understanding that your will is going to be done and that we are uh, already a part of the family of God and will be will be called to participate in these events. In uh, concert with our Lord. We look forward to these days, Father, and pray that our knowledge of them could be useful to us even now as we walk and support uh, the kingdom here. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to conclude the, the book of woes, as we've called it now, finishing with chapter 35, and then begin the first chapter. The book of Isaiah, as we've said already, has 66 chapters. The books of the Bible, there's 66. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27. And so, as you notice, we're in Isaiah 34 through 36. We're about to get to to Isaiah 39. And Isaiah 39 will conclude the story of Hezekiah. And chapter 40 will begin an entirely new section of the book. And in the way that the Bible itself is divided between book 39 and book 40, so to speak, you're going to see the... We're going to learn as we study Isaiah... Uh, that there is a distinct parallel between the way Isaiah's book is divided and the way the Bible itself is divided. Uh, One of many ways you could show divine uh, source for the scriptures, because who could have imagined that kind of perfect union, especially when you remember that the book, the book, the canon that makes up our Bible today and the chapter numbers that were assigned to Isaiah's writing all came long after their authorship. So... Uh, you know, God was working not just in the moment it was authored, but all the way through the process to bring us the Bible we have today. So this is going to be affirmed for you as we look at some of this later. We won't get to much of that tonight. That's coming up, but I wanted you to let, to let you know it is coming. Uh, before we get into the book of Isaiah again tonight, let's take a moment to revisit a scene in Revelation, in Revelation 19. You'll see why this is a, a good starting point for us tonight once we do start looking at Isaiah. So go to Revelation 19 for a moment and keep your thumb, I guess, and in Isaiah, if you want to, or your Bible ribbon, or some of your brownie, something that (laughs) holds the page for you. And in chapter 19, verse 11, we'll reread a section that we've covered here already once, and I know for the most part, everyone in here has read, I'm sure, at some point in time. But looking at it once more, Revelation 19, verse 11, John speaking says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it, He is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, as we know, this is the moment of Christ's second coming. It's the moment when, as he arrives and does what's described in this chapter, he then moves into the kingdom in the time that he reigns on earth. His return occurs in the midst of the Antichrist's attack on Jerusalem, at least in part. And with his armies made up, the Antichrist's armies made up of Gentile nations, They've all come and they've assembled against Israel in an attempt to destroy that city at the very end of tribulation. And at that critical moment, the Lord appears rescuing the nation of Israel as it remains in that moment and destroying all the armies that have come against her. That's the scene that we just walked through in the book of Revelation. This scene, the one we just read, mirrors the earlier one that we've been studying throughout the book of woes from the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah's account of the time when Assyria is in the land of Judah, they come against Jerusalem, they attack the city, but as we'll see here in a couple of chapters, they end in defeat as well, also at the hand of the Lord, who comes as the angel of the Lord in that day and destroys them. So with the scene of Revelation fresh in our mind and knowing how it relates to chapter uh, to, to Isaiah, let's return to chapter 34 tonight. And I, I gave you that background because you're gonna pick up in chapter 34, in the midst of this, as it were, in the midst of this moment, that's being described in Revelation. Look at Isaiah 34, verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains hear, and the world and all that springs from it. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and His wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So so their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench and the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. Isaiah here describes a destruction, one that's coming for, quote, all nations. And I read the earlier verses out of Revelation 19, because when you put them next to each other, it becomes even more apparent that we're talking about the same event. And of course, in the context of Isaiah overall, knowing what we've been covering in the last few chapters, this all flows naturally from that same point in time, from a, a picture of what will be done to the nations in a future day. We've been watching Isaiah, as you know, draw parallels between the coming destruction of Assyria, which he will account recount in chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39. That account with the future destruction of the Antichrist's forces, which Revelation 19 describes, among other places we've looked at. And by the context here, we know we're looking at the future one because he talks here about amassing of nations, not simply of one nation, Assyria. So when we know he's going back and forth, the key to understand, well, which one is he on, is to look at details like this. Is he talking about one nation? Is he talking about many And in the case of many, that immediately puts us in the context of the future and of the Antichrist. And in this future event, as he describes it here in Isaiah chapter 34, this is a slaughter like nothing else. I mean, I don't want to be any more graphic than I have to, but the text itself is pretty graphic. And particularly in chapter 19 of Revelation, right? We're talking about something that is horrific. Uh, in fact, this descri- the, the description here in Isaiah, the one I read earlier in, Reve- in Revelation 19, it's reminiscent of Revelation 14. If you know the structure of Revelation, at chapter 14, the books the, the course of the narrative stops just long enough so that in chapter 14, John gives you a preview of what's coming next. So if you think of it, chapter 14 is like the table of contents for the second half of Revelation. If you, knowing that helps you really follow that chapter a lot better. So up till chapter 14, he's been narrating somewhat linearly, somewhat in order chronologically. Then he gets to chapter 14, and there's a kind of summary of what's happened and what's about to happen. And then 15 picks up the narrative again. Look at what he says at the end of 14. Now, the end of chapter 14, then, is talking about the end of the second half of Revelation. Look what he says, 14:19. So the angels swung his sickle to the earth, and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and he threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, which means Jerusalem, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. So a valley would, you'd assume kind of a valley which is channeling this liquid, but it's enough to get it to the height of a horse's neck 200 miles long. Some would look at that as symbolic or as an exaggeration for effect. But, you know, the the key to understanding Revelation is not to turn things into symbols unless the scripture makes clear it's meant to be taken as a symbol. And there's nothing in the text here that indicates that's meant to be symbolic. It's consistent, really, with what Revelation says in 19. And even what Isaiah says in 34, right? That the mountains will be drenched with their blood, as he put it. These these statements, I don't believe, are hyperbole. And if so, then tremendous bloodletting takes place at the Lord's return. It would suggest, obviously, many millions of people all dying simultaneously. Further evidence that this is a unique time. And then in verse 4, verse 4 really confirms it for me that we're looking here at a future vision of the Antichrist, not of something that happened in Isaiah's day with Assyria, because verse 4 connects the death of all these nations to supernatural events in the heavens, things that, again, are consistent with what we know is happening during the time of tribulation and, for that matter, with the time of the Lord's return. From Zechariah 14, if you remember, we've looked in the past at that chapter, at the way his return is described, that it would be a day like none other. It would be at night, but yet it would have light, though it's not from the sun. And there's all these references to changes in the heavens. This again, in chapter 34 of Isaiah, this again is mirrored here. So we... Pretty clear now, we're looking at Isaiah talking about what will happen to the Antichrist in the last part of tribulation. Now, we have an even more specific set of of descriptions here regarding the Lord's battle in that day. And this is the focus for chapter 34. Chapter 34 is a detailed discussion of how the battle takes place. So, if you want to take notes or if you're making an outline for yourself, chapter 34 of Isaiah takes the events that are covered in Revelation 19, for example, and expands them with great detail over how this campaign takes place. Think of it like a military campaign. So in chapter 34, verse 5, Isaiah goes on, For my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood and it is sated with fat with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen will also fall with them and young bulls with strong ones. Thus their land will be soaked with blood and their dust becomes greasy with fat. Well, Isaiah uses a lot of agricultural references, animal references, that's traditional. Here you can tell by the tone that this is about people dying, but there is a kind of uh, analogy or, or, or symbolism, symbolism being used here in the sense that sacrifices under Jewish law were animals. They were done to appease the wrath of God. He is going to come by his own hand with his own sword and satiate himself, appease his wrath, but with the blood of people, a sacrifice in Batra. He's not going out and you know, mowing down fields of livestock. The reason is because we know what Batra and Edom represent from prior verses in Isaiah they're not associated in the text with um, a place where animal sacrifice is supposed to be taking place. It's and particularly in verses one through four of the same chapter we just came at, We came into. There's a clear description of nations of people falling and five through seven pick up the same thought, but move it forward now using the, the analogy of what you do when you sacrifice. You take animals, you separate the fat, you burn it. You take the blood, you let it. These are the processes of sacrifice, all intended to satisfy the wrath of God. Basically, 5, 6, and 7 explain why 1 through 4 happens. God's got a tremendous bloodletting he accomplishes. The natural question should be, why are you killing so many people? 5, 6, 7 begin to answer that by saying, this is, in verse 5, swords, satiating God's sword, descending on judgment against Edom and the people I've devoted to the destruction. You see in verse 5, upon the people. I have devoted to destruction. So he's making clear this is against a people group in Edom, but it is now with this purpose of sacrifice, a slaughter that is intended to appease God's wrath. And I think that's where I can draw an analogy pretty safely and to say the animals are picturing what he's doing with the people. Kind of move forward now. What's the most interesting aspect of this whole thing so far? When you look at verses 5-7, through what stuck out more than anything? Wouldn't it be the location? I mean, if we've understood things up to this point, if we know this is a scene that's equal to the one in Revelation 19, weren't we talking about Jerusalem? Wasn't the battle at Jerusalem? Now we're at Bethsra. Wait a minute, that's that's 70 miles away, southeast from Jerusalem. So, how did we move the location of all of the battles so far away from Jerusalem? That causes that would that would raise some questions, I would think. So, what else do we know about the place of Bethsra, Petra? It's where we have a remnant of Jews. If we know, let me just draw something on the board here, using relative locations. So that's Jerusalem, this is Batra. If you actually look at it on the map, that's about 72 miles. There's a city of people here, which we know from scripture we've studied already, is under attack from the Antichrist. And there is descriptions we'll see even tonight as I go back into some text that tells us Jesus does end up here at one point. So Christ is here at some point. He saves the nation of Israel, who is is still in the city. The people who are in the city, before his return, describe them. What kind of Jews are they? Orthodox, believing Jews, but they're not believing in Christ yet. So they're in in our parlance, they are unbelieving, meaning they don't believe in Christ, but they are still Jews. They have not taken the number of the beast. They are not apostate from that point of view. So I just want want to be clear with what I mean by the term, okay? So... And the reason they're under attack by the Antichrist is because they haven't taken the number of the beast. They are still against him in that respect, but they don't know Christ yet as Lord. That waits for the last moment, which, when that occurs, Jesus returns for them. Then the Jews in Batzra. What do we say about them? They are what kind of Jew? They are a believing Jew, or what we'd say is a messianic Jew. It's their, no, it's, it's their knowledge of Christ that has made them the remnant. So the re, And that's how Isaiah described them, a place for the remnant. He would put the remnant in this secure place. So there are, apart from these two groups, other believers in the world, Gentile believers, some number of them we presume, who, who well, we know, who have survived all the way to the very end of tribulation. They walk into the kingdom as natural men, believing, but yet still not yet in their new bodies. We've talked all about that before. So let's talk just about the Jews. We've got these two groups. Does the Antichrist know about both these groups? Absolutely he does. In fact, Revelation talks about how the dragon tries to come after the woman who has been holed up in in, in this place. So there's knowledge that the Antichrist knows about this and he certainly knows about them. So we have references in two different places of Scripture about battles, bloodletting, massacres, and so on at the hand of God against people who are under his judgment. Some of those references reveal or you know, describe the city of Jerusalem. Others seem to or specifically describe Batzra. So now we have to start thinking in terms of two places, not just one, if we're going to understand how the battle works. So let me, let me take you to Isaiah 63 for a moment. Isaiah 63 adds more detail to this part of the battle, the Batzra part of the battle. We did come here once before earlier in the study for other reasons at the time. Now we're going to come back to it, but now looking at the details of this battle. Chapter 63, verse 1. Uh, This is Isaiah speaking. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Batzrah? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And then to quote that person, the person says, It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Then Isaiah again, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? And then the person answers again, I have trodden the wine trough alone and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and in my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help and I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This, as you remember, is Isaiah standing in Jerusalem, watching this man approach him as he is in Jerusalem. So Isaiah, was, that was his hometown. He lived in Jerusalem. He rode out of that city. So he's describing a scene here prophetically as if Isaiah could leap forward in the future and be there on the last day of tribulation and stand in Jerusalem and look at a southeasterly direction and watch somebody, he says in verse 1, who is this who comes from Eden? He's watching somebody walking from Edom into Jerusalem. And then the conversation ensues. So in looking at this one who comes, we know this one to be Christ from the description he makes of himself and from what he said to have done. He's already bloody from battle. And he has fought this battle, he says, entirely by himself. That is also consistent with what we understand about the last day as Christ returns. He comes with a sword and he, he, he does his work without any need for help. He's, he's personally fighting the battle by himself. How does that reference, by the way, tie back to Assyria, just as a moment of connection? When the Assyrians are destroyed outside the city, it's by the hand of one angel or the angel of the Lord, as we know Christ to be in that moment. Again, not with any human help. So the scene is consistent, once again, between the two moments. Now, if you remember earlier when we were looking at this scene, what we were studying at the the earlier point in this uh, class, when we looked at Isaiah 63, we were learning more about the location of Batzra. We were learning about how it was a pen and it was a place that we were uh, coming to understand was God's holding pen for the remnant. You remember how that pen gets emptied? We studied this back then. How the Jews are described to leave this place. Their king leads them out. Do you remember that phrase? You may not, but that's what we read. So they are eventually freed from this holding place and the king leads them out. So all the pieces seem to be coming together. Jesus must come here first upon his second coming. Battle here first, all on his own, of course, not needing any help. Lead the captives out, as Micah describes it, because he's come for them. And they all walk or somehow magically move. I don't know what his capabilities are for transportation in that day. Maybe they hail a cab. But they go for 72 miles and approach Jerusalem. Isaiah in chapter 63 is given the prophetic uh, view of what that will be like. Now, he doesn't describe everyone following Jesus or whatever, whatever comes with him is not in Isaiah's prophecy. But that doesn't mean it. You know, that doesn't say anything about whether they were there or not. It just means that wasn't a part of what God gave Isaiah to talk about. What he gave him to focus on was the man Christ. And he described him as coming from battle. Already stained in blood. And he says at the end, I trod down the peoples. The word in peoples is goy. Again, that's the Hebrew word for nations. It's the Gentile nations that were there. Doesn't it make some sense if you're the Antichrist or if you can think like somebody in that situation would think? Hopefully you're not the Antichrist. The The thought here is, I've got two groups I've got to extinguish. I'm going to attack both of them. So... He would have some forces here and he would have some forces here. The, in other words, militarily, that makes perfect sense. Why would he only be attacking one? And the scriptures confirm that he's doing that. Revelation describes it as the dragon pursuing the woman, you know, symbolically. And here we hear, it, hear of it more specifically of, of Christ having to battle in that location. And then it's back to Jerusalem now. We also know from scripture there is a similar thing that's happening in, in Jerusalem. I mentioned earlier Zechariah 14. Let's look at a a moment again in in that chapter to see the other half of the battle, the battle that takes place up here in Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, verse 1 gives us that. And you've heard this before, but it's worth repeating now as we listen to it with this scene in mind. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, And the houses plundered and the women ravaged and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So now we are in view in this scene, aren't we? Then verse 6, In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. And it will be summer as well as in winter and so on and so on. And, you know, the rest of the story describes how the kingdom begins and the nation of Israel lives there in peace. So clearly there is war being waged in more than one location. Uh, We're not, you know, Isaiah 34 is not describing the battle in Batzra as if that's another way of describing Jerusalem. He's not using the words Batzra and Edom as somehow euphemistic for Jerusalem, there's no precedent for that in Scripture. It makes no sense for him to do that. And considering how in chapter 63 of Isaiah, he also describes Basra as a killing place, you have to look at it as another location for battle. And when 63 says he walks from Basra to Jerusalem, it connects the two nicely. It tells us the, the order of events, if you will. So we know Christ returns ultimately to Jerusalem, but it, it seems from all accounts out of Scripture that he actually begins this process in Basra. Think of it as a, a battle of two campaigns, both of them quick, neither of them in doubt, and the Lord moving swiftly through both. The judgment we're talking about here falls upon Edom, the place. So in verse 8 of chapter 34, he goes, Isaiah goes a little further now in talking about what the effect of all of this is on the location of Edom itself. Verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams will be turned into pitch and its loose earth into brimstone and its land will become a burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation, it will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. But pelican and hedgehog will possess it and an owl and a raven will dwell in it. He will stretch over at the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there will be no one there whom they may proclaim king. All its princes will be nothing. Thorns will come up in its fortified towers, nestles and thistles in its fortified cities. It will also be a haunt of jackals and abode of ostriches. The desert creatures will meet with the wolves and the hairy goat will cry to its kind. Yet the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. The tree snake will make its nest and lay eggs there, and it will hatch and gather them under its protection. Yes, the hawks will gather there, everyone with its kind. Here again with the animal references, but uh, some of these are symbolic, and we'll see why in a minute. Remember the oracle against Edom? Remember we went through that long section of oracles about all the neighbors of of Israel. So uh, in that earlier section uh, of Isaiah, and in particular chapter 21, which was the chapter about Edom, God went... Through, using Isaiah's voice, he went through all of the nations that surround uh, Israel, that bordered the nation of Israel. And one after another pronounced oracles against them for the way they had all been enemies of Israel historically. And in chapter 21, he gets to the nation of Edom. Remember that one? It was two verses long. It was the most uh, ambiguous, sort of the most inscrutable of the bunch. And when we worked through that, we learned that it was a particularly harsh Judgment against Edom. Do you all remember what the ultimate outcome against Edom was? And it was different from any other one of the nations. It was said that Edom would enter a deathly silence, meaning the silence of eternal death. That, in other words, even though the rest of the world, including all the other enemies of Israel, would have a future in the millennial kingdom... They would still be land. The land would still be there. It would still have the name of Egypt or whatever. There would still be Gentile nations living in those lands in the kingdom. Edom alone was singled out. It was the nation that would have no future in the kingdom, no opportunity for people to ever dwell in it again. It would enter a deathly silence, a land of perpetual darkness. Now look at what Isaiah says. Strong language in these chapters. And I want you to see it for what it's really saying. And you have to get a sense of it by looking at the details. It's a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. So what's happening here is for the cause of Zion, for the sake of Jerusalem and, and Israel, and it's, a, it's the way God will exact vengeance. It's for the purpose of vengeance. And then he starts describing the land. This is all descriptions of Edom. Now, you don't see the word Edom appear in these verses, but by the context, he's been talking about Edom from the beginning of this chapter. It's about Edom. And it's consistent with what he said in chapter 21. Look, not only is the place going to become a burning pit... But it will never be quenched. The smoke will go up forever from generation to generation. None will pass through it, meaning none will ever be able to live and move through it. Someone can't walk in to eat them and walk out forever and ever. If I told you what kind of place is a burning pit where smoke goes up forever, no one can go in or out of it, and it is a desolation forever, what place do you think I'm describing? And more specific than that, the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a literal place. It's not a concept, right? It will be a place. In fact, there's some scripture we may get to later in this course that says those who are in the city during the time of the Messianic kingdom will be able to look out over the walls and see hell in the distance. In other words, it's it's within view, the lake of fire is. It seems like the description of Edom here falls nicely within the, the general idea of what we know the lake of fire to be. Now, I'm not saying this is proof and I certainly would be willing to change my mind if, if I could you know, see good reason to. But I think at this point, the logical explanation is he's describing how Edom itself becomes the location God chooses to use for the lake of fire. And it's consistent with what we know he said about Edom, never a place that could ever come out of darkness again, always going to be under this curse. Then he starts to describe some of what happens in it and he uses these animal references. Now, we could take some time tonight to break down every one of them, but some of them are fairly unique. You don't see pelicans and hedgehogs mentioned in Scripture very much. So these are some references that don't you know, necessarily tell us a lot by themselves. But in, in conjunction with one another, when we line them all up, and particularly some of the later ones, the point is these are all uh, pictures or euphemisms or symbols for something entirely different than an animal. For example, the hairy goat is a symbol today even of what? What? Entity. What organization uses a hairy goat as their symbol, even to today? Anybody know? The Church of Satan. The Church of Satan uses it. The Night Monster. In Hebrew, the word is Lilith. Uh, it's not clear what the word means, but in Hebrew, in, in rabbinical teaching, a Lilith was a female demon. That's in the very end there, verse 14. And you notice it says, yes, the Night Monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. The female reference there. is consistent with the rabbinical view of what the word means, a female demon. Wolves, a wolf is often a picture of the enemy, right? A wolf in sheep's clothing. A tree snake, what do they typically picture in Scripture? There's a combined effect of all of these animals when you line them all up, knowing what the place is described to be like, that he is saying in this place during the Millennial Kingdom, you find the demonic realm that has been placed in the, the Lake of Fire, as their punishment, in the pit, as it sometimes is described. They would logically be the only ones there, right? Who, do, who is put in the lake of fire to begin the millennial kingdom? There's only two people from earth that we know go in there. The Antichrist and the false prophet. Those two men, I'm talking about the human beings now, Satan himself is bound because he's let loose at the end of tribulation, at the end of um, the millennial kingdom. But the human um, host that he was indwelling and using the man, the Antichrist, he and the false prophet are the first two inhabitants of the lake of fire and the only two for the first thousand years. But with them, presumably, some of the demonic realm are present because we know in other places of Scripture, Jude talks about this, Peter talks about this, that the demonic realm has been cast into the pit and bound there, chained there, some of them are let loose in Revelation, but the vast majority apparently do not come out again. They're in the lake of fire. That would be consistent. So again, I'm, I'm bringing some things together with some assumptions. I'm, 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 not, I'm hopefully not working too hard to force the conclusion. That's always the danger when you start to do this, is to, to work too hard to get to the conclusion you want. But a lot of the facts seem to line up such that we can at least consider it, I guess is the way I would put it. We can at least consider the possibility that what Isaiah is describing here is how Edom itself becomes the physical location for the lake of fire and that in this early stage of the beginning of the uh, millennial kingdom, it's occupied by, demo- by demons who have been cast into there uh, and a couple other people and it will be that way at least initially until at the white throne judgment when a lot more people show up in it. Esau is the name that Edom comes from, right? And it's to Malachi when he says, Jacob, I have loved Israel. Esau, I have hated the black and white motif there again between the chosen and those who are in in hell. Isaiah 34:16. moving on, he says, seek from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these will be missing. None will lack its mate for his mouth has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them and his hand has divided it to them by line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They will dwell in it. Now, who are they and where is it? I mean, in the context of what we've been reading, what would it have to be? They would have to be, specifically in the text, the animals, which we can maybe argue are demons. I think this actually makes it all the more likely that they're demons, because what's he got it out for ostriches for, or pelicans, or hedgehogs? I mean, why is he so upset at these animals? He's making them stay there forever, and generation to generation they will dwell there, you know, picking on the poor animals. Well, obviously that makes no sense. He, it, it would only make sense... If these people or these entities, whoever they are, are the ones that he needs to show vengeance upon, judgment upon, which implies sin. Well, animals aren't carrying sin in that respect. So, again, the animals' references can only be euphemistic for something else or none of it really makes a lot of sense. But to these people or these entities, demons, if you will, he says none of them will be missing. Well, none none escape his judgment, in other words, that none will lack its mate. Uh, which I think is another way of reinforcing the same idea. There'll, there'll, there'll be no one who's absent you know, anyone else that they should see there with them. And his hand has divided it to them by line. That's a way of saying his hand has seen to it that this is their outcome, that he, is, he has assigned this outcome to them. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They will dwell there. Following this judgment, the next chapter then explains the joy that will follow for those who are saved at Christ's return. So if chapter 34 if I re- is is dedicated to what go, what happens to those who are being defeated under Christ's return and then de- you know, condemned into this place of Edom. Flipping that around, what is for those who are on Christ's side when he returns? And that's what chapter 35 gives us. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom Profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reed and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there and the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and and sighing will flee away. So I read all that quickly because, as we've said several times already in this study, once you get the picture of what's going on in the kingdom, the references will continue to, to be easier and easier. Here's a good example of that. The land itself is seen as coming back to life. I think you see what Isaiah is doing here, right? He has taken the picture of land in the case of Edom and all that's going on there and made it the the kind of backdrop for discussing hell. Now he's taking the land again of Israel, of Zion, and making it the backdrop of describing what is effectively heaven. They're all references to Israel. Remember, the present-day Lebanon, the land we call Lebanon that is a nation, to them, that's just part of Israel's. We now think of it as a bunch of little nations all spread around, but in fact, they'll all be part of Israel in that day. You have all these geographical references. They all relate to Israel. They all talk about being rejuvenated, restored, uh, the feeble and exhausted being strengthened, people leaping like deer. I'm looking forward to that day. The phrase in verse five, the ears and eyes being opened. You know, we've talked about this already. That that's a sign of how this intentional hardening and and silence, uh, blinding of Israel is removed so that they can see the truth. This is all consistent with what we've seen before. Verse 6, the Lord's arrival results in a complete physical regeneration of Israel again. Their bodies are prosperous again. There's a roadway on which righteousness is, is seen. People walking into the city in righteousness and so on. So, with 34, then to 35, you see the last part of the book of woes. 34 being... A uh, woe of Edom specifically, but really a picture of the last days and how Edom becomes the hell, I think, of, of the Messianic kingdom. And then 35, then, is the picture of the kingdom itself, of being able to walk into Israel in glory. Now, 36, we pick up now with an entirely new section here uh, to end the first part of Isaiah. There's 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah. We're finishing 1st Isaiah with chapters 36, 37, 37. 38 and 39. Tonight we do one of them. Next week we'll do the last three. So tonight we introduce or begin the story of the uh, account of Assyria attacking Israel in the time of King Hezekiah. This is all happening, as you remember, because of what they did in entering into the covenant with Egypt. So, verse 1. Now, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. This chapter, as I said already, begins an important transition for Isaiah in several ways. Uh, First, he stops writing in poetry, starts writing in prose. And you may notice that in your English, in in the way they've translated the Bible for you, because in the English Bible, the the poetic verses have a, a short... Stanzas. So there's, there's this kind of short abbreviated sentences, you're, you know, lines. You see the difference. You get to chapter 36, you should see it start to open up and write and, and read differently on your paper because it's written now in Hebrew prose. This is, a, I think, one way you see where he moves out of prophetic teaching and into a recounting of history because he's moved out of poetry and into prose. He will stay in prose through the end of this first part of his book, through chapter 39. So 1st Isaiah will finish with a story, a prose story about the history of this event. As I said already, at the end of chapter 39, you leave 1st Isaiah. Chapter 40 begins 2nd Isaiah. I'll give you a hint about the difference. This this will begin to give you, I think, an idea of what's changing. All of 1st Isaiah, by and large, deals with the issue of Assyria, with Assyria's coming in judgment, with Israel's, response to the fact that Assyria was coming, with the reason why it had to come under Ahab, the reason why it came even further under Hezekiah, the, the, all of what you see in First Isaiah through chapter 39 is in some way, generally speaking, related to Assyria. So if you had to guess, what do you think chapters 40 through 66 are going to be related to then? Not Assyria, but Babylon. So the second Isaiah is all about Babylon. And we'll see more how that relates to the Old and the New Testament when we get to that point. Ahaz's son is Hezekiah. Ahaz was the one who, you may remember, made the mistake of not listening to Isaiah when they were on, the, on Fuller's Road, and he was telling Ahaz that he should not try to enter into some kind of alliance with Assyria uh, against the northern kingdom of Israel, and Syria, he disobeyed and decided to try it anyway. And Isaiah said, well, for that, you're going to see Assyria come in. In 703 B.C., Hezekiah now, as king leads a revolt against Assyria, expecting the Egyptians that he has entered into a covenant with to join him in repelling the Assyrians. So this is now 14 years after he's begun ruling. He's been ruling, his entire existence he's been ruling with Assyria in the land because of what his father did, King Ahaz. So King Ahaz lived out the rest of his reign with Assyria in the land, doing as they would, whatever they wanted really, He dies. Hezekiah comes into power for 14 years. He's dealing with dad's mistake. And in the 14th year, at about 703 BC, he's got this covenant now with Egypt. He, He leads the revolt. Israel takes the lead among the many nations in that region, Philistia and Egypt, Edom. There's several nations that are all feeling the pressure of Assyria. Israel takes the lead. And in the course of preparing for these battle and for what he knew would be a serious engagement as he begins his rebellion, he knows that Sennacherib is going to come down and do what he can to stop the rebellion. He builds this famous tunnel. You all know the tunnel? It's an underground half-mile tunnel from the city to to the spring that feeds the Pool of Siloam. It's an underground tunnel that let the water come in underground so that if they were holed up in the city, they weren't going to worry about the Assyrians cutting off the water supply into the city. They had an underground channel now that would provide the water they needed into the city. You all know the place I'm talking about? You can take tours now. You can, they found it recently, and you can walk through this very narrow tunnel. I think the water is still there, right? So you walk through it with your water up to your, to your chest or something. I haven't done it, of course. But, and you can walk the whole half-mile tunnel that was dug by men, by, by manual labor in 700 B.C., 703 B.C., remarkable engineering feat, actually. In 701, so two years later, in 701 BC, King Sennacherib invaded into Judah proper and into the city around, or into the area around Jerusalem to put down Hezekiah's rebellion. At about that point, Egypt made sort of a half-hearted attempt to do their bit under the covenant, but their only engagement with Assyria was a complete rout, and they gave up and went back, which was exactly what God said would happen, right? Right. That Egypt would be of no use to them. Now, as Assyria advanced toward Jerusalem, and remember we've studied already, they destroyed 40 something, 43, 44 cities in and around Judah. They kind of were like Sherman in, in, in the Civil War, kind of a scorched earth policy. They just rolling through Judah, doing damage, headed toward Jerusalem. As Hezekiah sits in Jerusalem, sees this coming, he realizes that he's in real trouble with Assyria. He, he doesn't have help, after all, from Egypt, and he's got really no chance against Assyria. So he sues for peace. He sends representatives to the Assyrian king and says, let's have terms of peace here. I, I kind of give up. The Assyrian king makes demands. And one of the demands he made was war reparations or tribute. Pay a tribute to me. Very expensive, a very high price. And Hezekiah paid it, thinking that would be the end of it. But then the king came back a second time and said, I want all of the population of Jerusalem to surrender, come outside the city, and we're going to deport them and send our own people in in place, which is what Assyria did. That's how they took away the northern kingdom's tribes as well. So they want to completely take all the Jews out of Jerusalem and take them away from the city. Well, that's not something, obviously, that Hezekiah wants to do. So the siege of the city began. So the siege is around this issue of, you owe me your people, I want the people in the city to come so I can finish this rebellion. And Hezekiah, holed up in the city, using the walls to defend himself, is looking for some reason of hope against the overwhelming odds. So that begins where we are. That's how this chapter began. Verse 2 now picks up at the moment of that siege. So, and the king of Assyria sent Rabshekah from Lashish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Ironic, right? He's standing in the same place that Ahaz was standing when he made the mistake that started this whole mess. Then Liakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. So these are Hezekiah's representatives. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? I say, your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now, on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which, if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God... Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? Now, therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. All right, so this is the opening salvo of the Assyrians against the representatives of Hezekiah, you know, arguing for their surrender, basically. And to make his point, he sends a large army with these guys. So he's he's got the intimidation factor turned up. He's trying his best. And they're standing, as I said already, at the same place where Hezekiah's father made his mistake... 20 years earlier. So 20 years earlier in the same spot, this scene was made necessary, if you want to think of it that way. The Assyrian representatives, they state the obvious in the beginning. They said Hezekiah had relied on a weak ally in his rebellion. So now where did that leave you? Who's who's going to help you now in the face of a superior army? And what he said up to that point is totally right. Everything he said right there is true. And it's actually in accordance with God's own promises concerning what Egypt would do for them or what they wouldn't do for them. So he's just stating fact at that point. But then he goes further and he declares that Israel can't depend on the Lord God either. Now, of course, here's where he starts to go off. In verse 7, he says that God is not going to help them because Hezekiah removed all the high places and altars around Israel. Here's the logic. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, how are you going to get help from a God who's probably upset at you because your king went around and removed all these high places and altars that were set up around your land to honor him? Won't he be upset at you for taking away the ability to worship in these places? But to Judah and to Jerusalem, he said, you shall worship before this altar. In other words, they had all these great places you could worship your God, and Hezekiah took them all away and he said, the only place you're allowed to worship is here in the temple. Don't you think that made your God mad? Why is he going to help you? Well, of course, the mistake in all of this is that they are assuming all these high places were worshiping the one same God that... They worshiped in the temple. And of course, we know that's not true. Hezekiah removed all the high... High place means a place of worship, basically. He removed all these high places because they were used historically to praise false gods, to praise pagan gods. So Hezekiah was doing the right thing, moving people back to the proper place of worship as God had designed it in the temple. Well, you know, the Assyrians don't know one god from the next. They're, They're pagans. So from their point of view, they're trying to make a good argument that you really have nothing to rely on with your god either. So they mock... Israel's weakness. And I love the way they do it, particularly with the horse comment. Did you get the mocking? What they said was this. I'll put it kind of in my own words. It's like two runners about to run a race and one of them is so sure that he's going to win. He tells the other one, Why don't you take a head start, I'll start in about 10 minutes. They're saying to them, how about we give you 2,000 of our war horses, assuming you even have enough guys who want to sit on them, and then we'll go to battle. You know, they're mocking him from the point of view that we'll even give you some help. How's that? A way of showing... That they're so confident. They have such a great advantage. Then finally, verse 10, the the official says something very intriguing. Did you notice? He says, your God actually brought us here in the first place. Now, that is a really odd statement. We know it's true. God himself said that's true. Very early in the book of Isaiah, he was described as calling to Assyria, whistling to them, if you remember. Like a dog, you know, beckoning them to come into the land. Well... We can understand as as Christians who know God as as the God of the Bible and we understand that what we're reading is true, we can hear him say something like, I sent Assyria in, and we can accept that makes perfect sense to us, right? But when you actually sit down and ask yourself, how did that really happen in, in, in real life? How did God make that actually occur? You would never have imagined, I would never have imagined, that they would have been conscious of it they would have felt themselves wanting to attack and they would have had all kinds of reasons in their head and they would have followed through on those reasons and from their point of view, they're just doing what they feel like doing. But up in the clouds, so to speak, God is up there setting them on this course unbeknownst to them because it fit into his plan. But this seems to suggest they knew exactly what was going on or at least least they understood that God of Israel was the one who brought them into the land. I don't know how he made that clear. That's a really strange thing because you know they don't worship this God. You would think that if you knew enough to know that a God sent you somewhere, then you would also, in the same breath, acknowledge him as God. Somehow those two things didn't connect in their head. They knew that it was from the God of Israel that they had been sent, but yet that's not enough to impress them uh, that he could destroy them or that he was a real God in any sense. I find it just intriguing that they knew that, and I wonder how they knew that. I wonder how it came to them. A prophet in their own land maybe said it. Who knows how it came to them? All right, so let's finish chapter 36, chapter 11, uh, 36, verse 11. Then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak with us in Judean in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? I, I love this guy for some reason. I just, Gosh, he's good, you know. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each of his vine and of... Eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephiraim? And where have they delivered Samaria from my hand? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand and who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their land from my hand that the Lord would deliver Jerusalem from my hand. But they were silent and answered him not a word for the king's commandment was do not answer him. Then Eliakim the son of Hilkiah who was over the household and Shebna the scribe and Joanna the son of Ashaph, the recorder came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Just a great exchange. I, I don't think you really need a lot of explanation. The intrigue of it is pretty obvious, right? And you know what the people on the wall are doing, right? You know what the representatives of Hezekiah are thinking when they say, speak to us in Aramaic. Aramaic was the diplomatic language of the day, much like French was at a time or English even to today. And they are saying, we understand Aramaic. You can use the diplomatic language. You don't have to speak to us in our common language. Of course, what they really want is for him to stop speaking in a language that the populace can understand because they know he's causing fear in all the people who can hear at the wall. And they're trying to keep the panic down. And they're probably one of the few who could understand Aramaic. And, of course, Reb Shek is no idiot. And he knows exactly why they're asking him to do it. So he doesn't. Pointedly, he doesn't. He goes the other direction. Of course, he shouts in Judean about what to expect and starts going over their heads to talk to directly to the people. But that one thing I stopped on and laughed at, I just I love what he does there, right? He says well, it wouldn't really be fair for me to just tell you about how everyone's going to eat their dung, you know? <laughs> it's just such a great way of making sure that he nails the point even more to these poor people on the on the wall. Okay, the people are told what they're told. Basically, he's offering them a chance to individually surrender, basically go over the orders of the king and just start coming out the city on your own. And look what he does. He says, first, you come out here, we'll feed you and water you. You'll be able to stay in your land for a time. We're not going to chain you up and kill you. We're going to just let you be for a time. But then he acknowledges, I will come and I'll take you to another land. We do plan to deport you, but don't worry, it's a good land. Tries to sell it like a timeshare. You know, like you have something in it for you if you'll come. Don't be fooled by that. The Assyrians were well known for what they did and it wasn't pleasant. So there's, there's, and they knew that. They knew that. And there was really no reason for them to believe it. Uh, But he's doing his best. And of course, in response, they say nothing because King Hezekiah told them, you're not allowed to speak to this guy. And then the report comes back. To the king. So next week when we come back, we pick up in chapter 37 and finish out this section of 1st Isaiah, seeing how King Hezekiah deals with this situation that really he helped create. But yet God has said already, I'm going to defend this city. And it really has little to do with the honor or the integrity or the dignity of these people, even to include Hezekiah, but it has everything to do with his son and with the need for that city to still be there for the time of Christ's birth and so on. So God is defending the city for his own sake. For his own purposes and he does it in his own way. So we come back to that next week and then after that we'll come into 2nd Isaiah. Father, thank you for the, the chance to understand so much of the history here. Thank you for Isaiah's uh, faithfulness and dedication in recording it so carefully for our benefit that uh, you gave him that mission. Father saw it through and and uh, brought it to us here today. We thank you for that. Father, we uh, we know there are mysteries building and, and understanding that is yet to come in this book and so we are dedicating ourselves to being patient and to being committed to understand it. I do pray, Father, you would continue to stir up that dedication and that commitment in us. Don't let us assume that what we have is enough, that we are always ready to learn more, and we pray you'd give us that opportunity. And uh, we always trust, Father, that as we know your word, as we dedicate ourselves to learning it, you are uh, ready to do a good work in our hearts through it. And so we look forward to that as well. Bring us back next week, if it be your will, Father, and let us continue in this study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.